Welcome to the inaugural episode of Type Tune Tint, formerly the Independent Author Podcast. I'm Tom Kranz. The path of creativity is hardly ever a straight line from idea to final execution. I think that's true for artists of all kinds, writers, musicians, sculptors, etc. And that's been my personal experience in writing novels. I always start with a germ of an idea and then start writing. After a while, I stop walk away, and then return to what I've written and try to read it as though I were a total stranger reading it for the first time. It really helps to walk away for a period of time, three days, a week. And once I reread it, if it's crap, I toss it. If it's only semi-crap, I keep it and I work with it. It's almost never gold the first time. And that's the beauty of writing on a computer. Changes are instant. You can save your semi-crap and return to it. Or in the event it actually is gold, you can enshrine it. But getting it down on the screen is the most important first step. You can always return to it and edit it multiple times. My new sci-fi novel, Moon Rescue, Escape from the Dome, is a case in point. I began writing it as a sequel to my first sci-fi novel, Time Travel Rescue, building on characters in that first work. But as I continued weaving the story, it needed to become something that could stand on its own. Sequels are fine, but I think to keep readers engaged, they also need to have their own identities. So in reading and rereading, I made adjustments to try to hang on to a first-time reader who hadn't read Time Travel Rescue. Of course, this required telling some of the backstory, and there's always a danger that the backstory becomes too bulky and boring. I think I walked the line and introduced just enough to fill in some of the blanks. I guess you'll be the judge when you read it and hopefully leave an honest review on Amazon. When writing science fiction, there's a certain responsibility to get the science right while still leaving plenty of room for imagination and speculation. I've always thought sci-fi should be fun. It's what first engaged me as a kid with old films like Forbidden Planet, The Day the Earth Stood Still, and then TV series like Star Trek, Lost in Space, and so on. But the basics of the science need to be as correct as possible because that credibility is the first building block of plausible science fiction. And that leads me to my guest today. John Camel joins me from my hometown, Philadelphia, where he is a science teacher at the Science Leadership Academy, a program of the Philadelphia Public School District and the Franklin Institute Science Museum that gives high school students with an interest in science a curriculum to spread their wings and thrive. John and several of his students were the science advisors for my Moon Rescue novel. John joins me today. And John, your path to becoming a public school teacher wasn't exactly linear either. You started your career in a much different place, didn't you? Yeah, I did, Tom. Uh, Yeah, I I fell in love with science and engineering when I was in high school in physics and then went on to study uh, mechanical engineering. uh, And uh, my degrees are in mechanical. And then for the first uh, eight or nine years of my career, I worked in the space program at uh, GE and worked on a bunch of different NASA projects and uh, Department of Energy projects. And uh, I was I felt very fortunate to be doing the work that I was doing at a young age. And uh, then I was an entrepreneur for 25 years. And then um, uh, once that uh, wrapped up, uh, I became a school teacher, a high school uh, uh, science and engineering teacher. And how old were you when you became a teacher? 
Jeez, uh, I was six, uh, 52, 52. Uh, let me just review real quickly. So you started off in a, in a career in a really interesting uh, field at Sp- GE Space Systems. And what exactly, speak to me like I'm six years old and tell me exactly what you did and what projects, what kinds of projects you worked on for GE Space Systems. Yeah, sure. Um, I was especially focused on, at the, in the time that I was there, um, energy systems, uh, systems that would provide power and energy to all different types of spacecraft, and especially around interplanetary spacecraft like Galileo. And I, earlier, prior to me, was Voyager and those kinds of spacecraft. Um, and then later was Ulysses and Cassino, Cassini. Um, those spacecraft need special types of power sources because they're very far from the sun. And so a a major focus of my efforts there were on that. Uh, I also worked on the idea of uh, nuclear powered uh, satellites, um, which today sound kind of uh, far-fetched that we would actually have um, live nuclear reactors uh, in earth orbit. But at the time in the eighties, when in the middle of the SDI initiative uh, that Reagan was um, sponsoring, there was uh, a look at a whole b- wide range of different things. I also worked on the space station design, and I, I felt quite lucky to um, to have kind of lived a graced uh, a period of time there working on a bunch of different really fabulous projects. Well, it must have been an incredible experience, eye-opening, enriching, and look at all the knowledge that you gained doing that. Uh, tell me about the movie The Martian and, that, and the scene there that reminds you uh, of you. Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, I'd forgotten that I told you that at some point. Yeah, the the uh, uh, my my students are always interested in that. I, I there, there's there is a scene in The Martian where um, where Matt Damon is or Matt Damon's character uh, faces the the problem of needing to get across the Martian surface to the to essentially the place that he would be rescued, and uh, to pull this off, he needed to get into a rover and go a long distance. And one of the principal challenges on a place like Mars is uh, temperature control and, uh, you know, sun's set and then, you know, and then sun's rise. And uh, when that happens, uh, you can uh, dramatically change the temperature of anything. And here on earth, we're, we're insulated with our atmosphere. So that helps us to not have such dramatic swings, but uh, on Mars where there's very little atmosphere that that's not a, uh, it doesn't help very much there. So uh, he would, he found himself freezing, uh, you know, on his, uh, trial runs and um, and then remembered, oh my gosh, that's right. We have a RTG, a radioisotope thermoelectric generator. And that's a device that I had worked on, me and thousands of other people, um, that would be bolted onto the side of things like that, you know, Voyager, Galileo, Ulysses, Cassini, those kinds of spacecraft. And uh, and his realization was, oh my gosh, that's right. There there was a uh, there was a spacecraft that had that had made it to the Martian soil and had an RTG and it would still be radiating heat. And he went and dug that thing up and that my massive claim to fame, if I even have one would be that, um, would be that I have a patent and I hold it with others uh, on a device that would allow an RTG to actually work on Mars. So uh, the way I, you know, sell it to my kids. And of course it's always, it's a, a lot of performance when you're a teacher, you know, is, uh, is yeah, yeah, I saved Matt Damon's life. That's my claim to fame. So I love that. See, you did. That's amazing. <laughs> exactly. That's cool. Um, and they so, ask whether or not I get any royalties or anything. And of course, I and you get I, nothing. I get exactly. nothing. So um, you did that for a while, and then you and some partners started a software company. And 
Um, whenever anybody asked me what what kind of software this was that you guys developed and then marketed and supported, uh, my little brain basically said something really dumb like, well, it's a piece of software that will run your oil refinery. Now, tell me really what it did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it, it's in the category of uh, supply chain planning and optimization, and it's um, uh, in, in very large production production environments. Oil refining is one, uh, especially plastics manufacturing. Uh, um, well, today we do, the, the company still does uh, the manufacturing and design and uh, uh, scheduling and planning for the production of uh, little uh, cherry tomatoes that you get at the store that come in a little plastic bin. Yeah, well, we're the kings of that, <laughs> you know, still. And uh, ibuprofen and a wide range of things. And um, w- when you, when you make, um, when you make products like that with tens of thousands of different products that you're making and tens of thousands of rail cars moving that stuff around, uh, you find that mathematics is a, is a, is your good friend. And so we, um, kind of specialized in understanding the math that would go behind planning and scheduling those kinds of complex operations and then optimizing them for profit and for uh, all other kinds of things. Um, so supply and chain, basically, we're talking about, right? Exactly. The optimization of supply chain. So I guess I could have. they could have maybe used your software to prevent this crap that's going on on the West Coast with the <laughs> ships sitting out there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, our software, actually, in times like this, where there's supply chain disruptions, we the, the company still does you know, one-off analyses to help our clients with problems like they're having right now and say, all right, how do I get myself out of this pickle? I remember when Hurricane Katrina came through and devastated the Gulf Coast, we were stayed up nights trying to help our clients, you know, uh, around the problems that they were having. Hmm. So, um, and then you guys sold the company and then you moved on and then you became a public school teacher in one of the most troubled, financially strapped school districts in America, the Philadelphia School District. Did you always want to be a teacher or did you just wake up one day and said, I know how to share this with kids or what was what what led you to do this? Yeah, I've often I found myself always motivated and interested in in youth education and mentoring. So I was involved in all different types of mentoring projects and being on school boards and that kind of thing. And I, I just gravitated towards that. And um, if, if there's ever a party I would, and, and they had teen kids, I would find myself ending up going and talking with them and not wanting to be with the adults, which says something like, you know, well, you really enjoy the energy of young people, which has really always been true. And to this day. And so um, you said, did I wake up one morning? I actually went to bed one night and and I was just thinking, well, what am I going to do? I, I don't want to retire. I'm, you know, I'm young and I still have a, a fair amount of piss and vinegar and I'm, I'm ready to keep going here. And it suddenly hit me. God, I, I bet you I'd like to teach physics. I, I bet you that would be in engineering and um, in a high school setting. And that would be terrific. And, and once that caught me, I just couldn't let it go. Every night I would lay in bed thinking of what I would do next and how I would structure my room and what I would say to the kids. And, uh, and I couldn't let that go. So. There, there it is. Well, God knows the kids need, you know, as many people, as many teachers like you as they can possibly get, not only in Philadelphia, but everywhere. Tell me a little bit about your students. Where do they come from? These are these are kids, as I described them really broadly, who kind of have a special interest in science. Is that is that accurate? And how do they end up in your class and in at the SLA? Yeah, uh, many, many students do have a, an interest in science, uh, in, but it, our school isn't overly sciencey in that way, although it's in our, it's in our name, we we actually have an incredibly strong uh, departments in, 
in English and languages and humanities. And um, uh, we have a higher than average percentage of kids that go into STEM, but not a freakishly high number. Um, these are kids from every single zip code in the city. Uh, they are uh, generally poor uh, kids. They come from poor families. Uh, they uh, showed an aptitude at, at their elementary middle schools uh, for doing well at school and being serious about school and also being interesting and wanting to learn. The, the, the key is that they've, they, they've demonstrated an interest in being lifelong learners. And um, we interview every kid that applies. Mm. And un unfortunately, um, we can only accept a small fraction of those kids because there's a great need. And, you know, this is the poorest school district of any large city in the country. And there's a desperate need for a good education there. And, um, and there's only a handful of schools like this. So uh, we unfortunately can only accept a certain number of students. And then once they're in the school, um, the, the, the unique model that we have, and we're kind of like a national model school, uh, is, um, is that we do inquiry-based and project-based learning. So, uh, uh, you know, a young person, um, uh, the, the classic example that I always give is how, how do they learn about, um, how do they learn physics? And in a typical school, uh, and by the way, every student takes physics in our class, in our school, not not because we're a sciencey school, but because we just believe that the, the core ideas of what's happening in physics is, is fundamental for every person. Um, so in a normal school, you'd go in and somebody would say, okay, uh, you know, the teacher would stand up in front of the class and lecture at the, at the whiteboard and say, okay, let, let me, here's the equation for the, uh, the pendulum. And you would get the equation for the pendulum. And then they say, all right, here's a sheet. Now solve all these problems that use the equation for the pendulum. And that sounds perfectly fine. But then if you quiz a kid, you know, six months later and you say, tell us about pendulums, they have no idea what a pendulum is or how it behaves. And for us, um, we instead start on their first day and we have a set of pendulums hanging from the ceiling. And we say, uh, your job is to play with these pendulums and derive the equation of a pendulum. Hmm. And that takes a week, whereas normally a pendulum only takes an hour to, to have your lesson and give them the sheet. But because they go way more deeply into this and slower and they do it more holistically, we are teaching them how to do science. Remember, science is a practice. It's not a body of knowledge. It's a, it's a way of learning the reality of the universe. And we, um, we teach them how to go about doing that through projects. Wow. So, so they not only learn it, but they retain it. And they do. And this type of education has been shown to, um, uh, to have, uh, you know, fundamentally changed the way people think and their outlooks on the world. And, um, and especially right now, you know, the, the need for people to understand uh, the importance of rational thought <laughs> and reality and, um, and the way that the world actually works uh, has never been greater. We failed to halt the Earth's slow death due to climate change and environmental apathy. The planet's temperature rose seven degrees, causing epic storms, fires, droughts, and tides that ate away at our shores. Now in the year 2212, food is manufactured. Coffee and cars are illegal. The people who are left live in cubes, and the Earth is covered with bubbling lakes of a black toxic brew. Two 23rd century rebels find a way to travel back in time to our century to stop the poisoning in its tracks and the arrogance that made it possible. Their mission is complicated by fear among their 21st century hosts and the murderous ways of one of the rebels. Read Time Travel Rescue, the sci-fi adventure called Unique and Original by Publishers Weekly. Time Travel Rescue by Tom Kranz, available on Amazon. 
when you were, when I approached you and, and said, you know, you got some smart kids in your class, I could really use some guidance on this. You approached a couple students specifically. Um, these are kids who had an interest in aerospace and space issues, or did you just kind of throw it out there and say, does anybody have any ideas for this author who you have no idea who he is? And uh, you know, how, how did you, how did you do that? And what was their reaction? Well, yeah, I, I actually did approach these two students. So I, I just happen to have two seniors that are very, very interested and motivated in all things space sciences, Max Gilbert and Guy Bayon. And uh, uh, they've demonstrated a, a, a very deep uh, and abiding uh, interest in all things space. And um, and I knew that they would be a really good fit for this. They're, mm-hmm. they, they're deep thinkers and are motivated around these subjects. So uh, I asked them both and they jumped at the opportunity. Well, you know, they, uh, the good thing about talking to teenagers, I guess, and emailing to teenagers is they are pretty straightforward in their answers. You know, there's not a lot of couching and there's not a lot of uh, what am I, extraneous bullshit in the language that they use. You know, they just basically, here's the question and here's the answer. And that yeah. was actually really helpful to me. You know, when I write these, I write science fiction, I have to write on a level that uh, that I and people like me understand, which is basically at least, I guess, high school level, not too far above that. And I found that when I was researching beyond what uh, your students and what you provided me, I went onto the internet and of course read popular science and science magazine and space and all these magazines. And, you know, they always, the articles always start out in English. And by the time I'm 10 minutes into it, it's like, I want to kill myself. I just, I just don't get it. <laughs> and so I have to kind of go back to, to square one. But what was helpful to me was uh, the really basic questions I had for them. Like, you know, do you really think it's possible to build this gigantic dome on the moon? Do you think people can actually live there? What about the air that they breathe? Where's water going to come from? That's the kind of stuff that I needed to know. And, and they gave it thought and it was really helpful, you know? And as I said in my forward and, and here, I took, you know, I, I took the advice and I took their guidance, but I always keep in mind that it is science fiction, right? You know, there is no such thing as actually beaming on and off the enterprise. I don't think there ever will be. Well, maybe there will be, I don't know, in 300 years, but uh, you know, part of science fiction is the fun aspect, the imagination of it. And I'm hoping that when they read the book, they don't scream too loud at some of the stuff I made up. I guess you'll let me know, though. <laughs> I absolutely will. <laughs> Good. John, I really appreciate you taking some time out uh, on your Saturday here. I I wish you and all the kids a lot of luck. Uh, I just want to put in another plug. Folks, if you want to read you know, how these really smart kids and, and John, their instructor, guided my story, go out and spend three, four, five bucks on, on a download of uh, Moon Rescue, Escape from the Dome. Uh, it's my new book. It's a follow-up to Time Travel Rescue, if you read that one. Thanks again for, for your help and thank the boys. Uh, it was my pleasure to join you. Uh, thanks for having me, Tom. All right, peace. The Earth is dying a slow death. The 5,000 people living on the moon are in trouble. Their paradise has become a cautionary tale of human weakness. We need a hero. Enter Rick Mack and the Planetary Commission to save the Earth, the moon, and themselves.
Moon Rescue, Escape from the Dome by Tom Krantz. Now available in ebook, paperback, hardback, and audiobook. These are the questions explored in the podcast, Type Tune Tint. Tom Kranz chats with writers, musicians, and artists, most of whom found their talent by accident, late in life, or hiding under layers of denial. Subscribe to Type Tune Tint wherever you get your podcasts.